Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show presented by The Big Lead. I'm coming at you with a double dose of interviews today. First, we have Rahelio Castillo. He's the co-host of Detroit Tigers Radio. After that, we're going to be talking to Beth Moens, who is on the call for the NBA on ESPN tomorrow night. She'll be the first female broadcaster to do play-by-play of an NBA regular season game. I'm excited to talk to both of them. Two divergent ideas, but first... We're going to welcome in Rahelio. And the thing with the Tigers is they are actually fun to talk about because there is some hope on the horizon. Entering this offseason, we expected some significant moves. The first one came with Eduardo Rodriguez, who I really love his personality. I love his big game pedigree. If healthy, and he's coming off of a long COVID spell, perhaps the player who had the most drastic COVID diagnosis in the entire in the entirety of major league baseball was productive and pitched in the postseason for the Red Sox last year. Then focus moved to the number one target on everybody's board, Carlos Correa. Ultimately it doesn't appear unless they're planning some sort of crazy move to put him at third base. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen as Al Avila in his infinite or perhaps limited wisdom decided to go with Javier Baez, who is a pleasure to watch, but obviously has some deficiencies in his game. So where I want to start with this is what was your first reaction to the Baez news? And were you as personally disappointed as it seems the average Tiger fan was that they weren't getting exactly the present they wanted for Christmas? You know, I wasn't personally disappointed because this is a team that We've seen the likes of getting free agents such as Matt Moore. It's been kind of a slim pickings last couple of years. So for the Tigers to be on the hot stove conversation, first and foremost, is fantastic. Um, I know Baez has that 30% strikeout rate that exists. He makes the plays. People maybe perhaps call it hot dogging. But look at the financial flexibility with this deal. It's brilliant. I mean, I could never – people might perhaps never said that about Al Avila before. But a two-year opt-out cause – same time, Mickey's contract comes to an end. You have Rodriguez to anchor the bullpen, or excuse me, the, the rotation. It, it, it's a win-win all around because you still have developing talent coming up like Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, who's according to the fangrass, his projections look really good. And he moved up all the way up from high A to triple A last year. And, and, and watching him play throughout the three levels, it was worth traveling for. And so there's a lot of like, and at the same time, I'm still cautious because after Ryan Kreidler, there's still a deep drop off in the prospects. But we'll see how that they address that. So the thing with Baez that's interesting, and you mentioned the contract, is it provides that flexibility. Obviously, there's that albatross of a contract. 
as we've grown accustomed to as Tigers fans, people late in their career, sucking a lot of money up. My thought process is I'm a bit, I'm a bit confused in Tigers fans who believe that this team was ready to compete on a meaningful level next year. I don't think this is a World Series team, even with Correa. And I think in situations like this, yes, it's hard to be patient, but there does need to be a long view. There are going to be free agents available next year. That seems to be one thing that everybody is forgetting. And this rebuild is not all going to happen this offseason. The Tigers go into next year in kind of the enviable situation where, look, if all these prospects, like you mentioned, Green, Torkelson, we believe that they have a good chance to be not only in the opening day lineup, but being in the middle of that lineup. Best case scenario, they progress. That young pitching staff, if they all take a jump, then you are contending a year or perhaps two years before you were expected to. So I don't think it's a total wash. I don't think it's a loss. And I think that Tigers fans are getting a little bit they're falling victim to this idea that the future is being punted on and a World Series window is being shortened or closed or however you or however you want to see it. When in reality, I don't even think we've gotten to that stage yet. So there's no need to lament over missed opportunities, which haven't even arrived on the doorstep yet. I agree with you, Kyle. And one of the things that they're in addition to, they still have to address to get another left-handed reliever to complement Soto. You still have to get another good starter. I mean, they could sign Willie Peralta, but again, is he? he I, I view him more as a swingman because the third time through the order, the numbers show he gets hit up quite a bit. And Chris Federer is a magician, but he only do so much. And so I think you have to look at the fact that even in the farm system right now, you have Alex Fado, who's just coming back from Tommy John, and studies have shown that within the second year you get better. But what is what his what will his role be? Will he be out of the bullpen? Joey Wentz is coming back, and he looked pretty good towards the tail end of the season after Tommy John. But once again, do they put him in the rotation or the bullpen? And after that, there's a drop off. I mean, you could talk about. I mean, you could talk about the fact that Bo Burrows, or not excuse me, Bo Burrows, but Bo Brisky made a really good job. Did good job last year. Tiger minor league pitcher of the year, 27th round pick, Garrett Hill, who is Rule Five eligible. There's a couple guys there, but beyond that. We don't know what to expect from Dylan Smith, who was drafted in the fifth round out of Alabama. Was Ty Madden going to look like? And a lot of people, and rightfully so to a certain extent, the Tigers picked up Jackson Joe. So they know something that no one else knows, but he's three or four years away. I mean, the kid's only 19 years old. So you still have to address a lot of the depth. And it's just that, that to me, before anything else, is more important before they even be, begin talk World Series or playoff contention. So let's spin it in a positive way. Here's the way I've been thinking about Baez. No, he's not Carlos Correa. And to me, Carlos Correa is, in many ways, the second coming of Derek Jeter. Same position, great teammate, leader of a franchise that went to five straight ALCSs. He has been there, and he's been through the fire with Hinch, and obviously there's connectivity there. AJ Hinch, give him a lifetime contract right now. I'd be a happy man. But with Baez... Tigers fans are going to get the opportunity to watch what I believe to watch who I believe is a player that is 
perhaps the most exciting I've ever seen with his glove when you combine his tagging ability, his ability to play all over the place, his athleticism, his spectacular plays. That all goes back for me personally. My favorite player of all time is Ray Ordonez, who was a light hitting shortstop for the New York Mets, but was the most acrobatic, stunning defensive player. We saw that with Jose Iglesias, who was kind of like the second coming and did things with the glove that nobody thought he could do. Then with Baez, you get the added base running ability where there was a game, I think it was on a holiday at Wrigley Field. The Tigers were there and I think he stole home or he came around from second on a throw to first. And it was as exciting a four seconds as you could ever imagine. Tigers fans are going to get to watch 162 games of that this year, potentially for a long time. He has a player profile that I think he's actually probably going to retain his athleticism into his early 30s. So I don't think there'll be a precipitous drop. He can always go to second base. He's a guy so competent with his glove. He can play a corner outfield, maybe not center because Comerica requires such athleticism and you need that defensive stopper out there. But what beyond the things that I said, he provides a dynamic bat for a lineup that has been looking for one. Yes, there were signs, but I'm not so sure we can sit here and say that Robbie Grossman is a transcendent hitter. As productive as he was, Jonathan Scope has his limitations. This is a guy who, when he's right, can really put up OPSs that flirt with 900, can run the bases. Let's just take a moment to bask in all that Baez brings to the game. What stands out to you? You know, first of all, I love the Ray Adonis re- reference. He was a Cuban shortstop, and my father was a big fan of his acrobatics, and he was such a great defensive shortstop. Also wore number zero, which was pretty cool. Um, what I like about Baez is his baseball, baseball smarts. He understands the game. He knows the game. He's passionate about the game. And that, to me, is a skill that can, in terms of being a leader in the clubhouse, go rub off on other teammates. You got kind of Larry on the left side. And that's a pretty good defensive lineup on the left side. And let's say Scope plays first, and maybe Ryan Kreider starts developing a little bit. You put Kreider short, Baez at second. You know, Kreider's a little tall for being a short, but again, anything is possible. But then one of the things about Baez, too, what I really like is the fact that he's fun. Like, the, the, where he's dropping the gum, and then he just picks it up and goes, yeah, I got it. And it just, that to me, I think fans would appreciate the fact that he spoke about Miggy 12 or 13 times during a press conference yesterday and how the influence of that, that to me says that he, he gets what they're trying to do here. And Hinch likes guys like that, the multi multi-positional players. And that's an element that is a significant upgrade from no offense, Nico Goodwin or anything like that, but it adds a cloud to it. And it really, if you look at the division across the board, he looks like one of the best shortstops in the AL central. And that to me just, it, gives the Tigers a little more clout defensively, much needed clout. They had a minus 19 in defensive run save last year. I mean, it's just to me, this is a significant upgrade, not only defensively, offensively, but a really good clubhouse presence. And you need baseball IQ. It helps out. In terms of excitement, we saw the cult of personality that Akil Badu had, uh, him legging out a triple. I feel like that really inspired a lot of fandom among Tigers fans playing in that big yard. There's something about triples. There's something about a five to a player and Badu's approach uh, at the plate is certainly more disciplined than Javi Baez, but 
you mentioned the Miguel Cabrera component of all this, and you mentioned how it was almost like there was a quota for Baez to hit in terms of saying Miggy's name. He's kind of the elephant in the room and also the linchpin to all of this because we know his personality. We know that the team is being actively dragged down by him, by him hitting third in the order. In my mind, he's never going to come out of that role. And I think that's a disappointment. But I do think his most value at this point, and I, I wrote that Miguel Cabrera was done, and I largely stand by that as the shell of what Miguel Cabrera was. But it'll be very interesting to see what type of role he assumes for this franchise going forward, cultivating talent, cultivating players who earn the moment more impactful and productive than him. But he has this wealth of experience. If you went out there and tried to find a hitting coach, you couldn't do better than Miguel Cabrera. So it will be fascinating to see how much he really loves the game. If he wants to transition to kind of like this player coach calming personality. I think he has it in him. I'm not counting those chickens before they're hatched because he is very proud. He can be cantankerous, but how do you see the evolution of Cabrera going forward as the Tigers round into a team that's extremely young, extremely pitching heavy and has aspirations of competing for meaningful baseball games in October? A lot of people give grief because Miguel is not a rah-rah type of leader, but you see how his fan or his teammates interact with him, and I think his role going forward. You saw last year that his swing—he he adjusted his swing, so he generated more power. And this is all muscle memory. His knees and legs are done. I mean, from from my understanding of everything. And I think what's going to happen here is that as he's as he hits his three thousand hits, as he can or three thousand hit rather. Once he gets into that, I think a little more of that burden will come off him a little bit relax and I think he will be able to help out the younger players there is he might be cantankerous but I think the, one of the things that as somebody who speaks Spanish I think sometimes it, I think it's really depends on who he's talking to and I, I've seen this before where he's on Vila baseball and he's talking and just seem energized talking and so speaking his native language and I, and I get it you know and so but I think the contract value, which again, people have always said, oh, this is the reason why the team is struggling. No, Tigers also signed Jordan Zimmerman to a bad deal. They have not developed anybody. It's a, it's a combination of things. But the one thing about Miguel Pereira and his role going forward is he gonna, he's going to be a good ambassador for the city of Detroit. You look at what's going on with the other sports teams right now. The Lions are horrific. The Wings are in a period of transition getting better. You have Kay Cunningham and the Pistons, but the Pistons are struggling right now. Miguel has been there since the good times, the bad times. And unlike when the Tigers signed Pledge Rodriguez, which they didn't have anybody, Cabrera has been there and telling guys, hey, this is the place you want to be. And he wants to win. He still wants to win. And I think that goes a long way. So the last time I, I grew up in a particularly lean period for the franchise where they didn't win anything the first 22 years of my life highlighted by 119 lost season in 2003. Then you had the Pudge Rodriguez acquisition. And while I don't think that Baez is Pudge, I think a good comparison might be Maglio Ordonez. It was kind of like that second tenant, that player who still had a lot to give, was very exciting, could do a lot of different things. And really he became that 2006 Tigers team. You can talk about Pudge all you want. To me, the thing that made the whole thing go 
was Ordonez. And I don't think Baez has ever had that in his life. And you make a good point about the personality thing too. And it's something that gets glossed over and Spanish speaking players have a high bar to clear that other players don't have to, because who would be comfortable in that situation? Like we do, we deny the basic humanity and understanding of people. It's hard to be a major leaguer, no matter what. Now imagine doing that in your second language while you're trying to acclimate to everything else. But I really think that Baez's opportunity to be the man here, as I think that he will be if the roster doesn't improve, he's certainly the most dynamic offense and bat you had the base running and the fielding into it with the Cubs. He had Anthony Rizzo. He had John Lester. He had kind of like this cadre of veterans who I think were always kind of like seen as the team leaders. This is a brand new opportunity for him to put his stamp on a franchise. And he seems really excited about it. So while there's not the continuity that Correa had with Hinch, this Tigers team, as it goes forward, like it or not, we can't just build the Astros 2.0. It w- maybe it's not the worst thing to have a different face out there leading it that maybe doesn't have that baggage that even though I think the Correa Hinch relationship would be really good, I do think that it would set up, okay, well, these are the Astros guys. This is what worked and everybody else needs to buy in. Maybe the thought is getting everybody to buy into something new together. I would agree with that, Kyle, because I, I look at the fact that you see the Dodger influence coming in. For example, the, the, the recent hires um, in the minor league with Gabe Riveros. We also have blanket out of his name, uh, Garco, Ryan Garco, who's going to be the vice president of player personnel. This is just complete another 100% different mindset change. It's not just that Houston Astros thing. I mean, Scott Coolball, which you're familiar with, was with the White Sox for a little while, was a part of that Texas Ranger run in the early millennia, or early 2010s, rather, and as an effective hitting coach. What you're seeing here is something I've never, and you and I suffer through the same stretch of Tigers baseball, is that there's not going to be a reference to 1984 because, quite frankly, I'm tired of it. Like, even the guy, like, even talking, we talked to Lance Parrish a few years ago at a West Michigan game when he was a manager, and we talked about everything but the 84. And you could tell he just wanted to keep talking about it. And so I think what we're seeing now is a different, complete another mindset. It's not just talk. There's action. There's results. You see um, Hinch is influence on Harold Castro and these role players who really, in essence, if you look at the numbers, yeah, granted, okay, they don't have the greatest war or whatever the case may be. They don't walk, but they played a part in everything. Harold Castro was among the leaders in, in clutch hits and just in those little categories you don't think about. And that to me says a lot about creating the mindset and seeing the results and the Federer effect. And when we had a better made potato chips with the Federer effect, because it's real. And there's numbers that indicate that. And I've never witnessed anything like it. I mean, we it's, it's a far cry from the Rick Anderson days, but you see legitimate Tigers moving into a modern era of baseball that we haven't seen here. I mean, even when Maglio and, and um, Pudge were here, it was still kind of old school. And you see team, they were still kind of like eh, analytics, but now you see guys old school, like David Littlefield has been kind of put out a little bit. And some of that, um, seeing the younger guys come up and using analytics and, and trying to take the most what inch did with that roster last year. If you, if you told me at the beginning of the year they would have gotten 70 plus wins, I told you were high. And that to me is maximizing 
your abilities as a manager. But I always think the managers don't have much of an ability to affect the roster outside of, you know, like a Jim Leland type or whatever. But I was totally wrong about that. So, yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to close on Hinch. I don't know if everybody, unless you were watching the team each and every single day, it's really tough to explain how much better this guy was than Garden Hire and exponentially better than Brad Osmus, which an era I would love to forget. Uh, let me look at one of those men in black pens and uh, decide <laughs> that, it, that it didn't happen. But what did you see from Hinch? What makes him so special? For me, the one thing that stood out, and please feel free to add to this, is he was fearless. Like, this guy made moves, and he got people to buy in, and you could really see him managing the game, putting faith in the Castros, like you said, to get that big hit, to trust them in the situation, be like, look, they're fringe major leaguers, but any given day, they can go up there and get that double. And it takes... You know, it takes a village. It takes 45 players to get through a season anyway. What did Hinch show you in year one in Detroit that has both you and I and Tigers fans as a whole kind of brimming with confidence going forward? It was during the losing streak where the Tigers started off to a wrong, uh, to a bad start. And they, and notoriously in history, they always have. And he managed to make changes. Wilson Ramos, gone. Nomar Mazar, gone. That he didn't mess around. And that to me, even I, I look at the way he handled the catcher situation. You look at a guy like Jake Rogers, who under Garden Hire wasn't really, I mean, to be honest with you, wasn't really mentioned. He was he was there and they put him in triple A and he you could tell he was kind of like, you know, what the heck's my role here? And then he introduced Eliasism, and all of a sudden you see the Rogers that everybody talked about when they came over from Houston, the arm, the defensive ability to, to lead a staff. And then I look at the Eric Haas situation as another example of that. There's, I think under Garden Hire, Eric Haas would have just been kind of floundered a little bit in terms of just being out there. But under Hinch, they found out a way to maximize his abilities without getting him exposed. And that to me is a big key to that because Eric Haas, yeah, Eric Haas and Badu and Tara Scooble, who again struggled at the beginning of the year, came back through and made adjustments. And I think. What Tiger fans need to know about H.A. Hinch is he's not going to just sit there and be complacent. And no offense to Garden Hire, but I think at this point in his life, he was just like, I'm just going to hear. And I, I really, I mean, see the the passion, but Hinch is always thinking five moves ahead of everybody. And Tiger fans got really, really upset beginning of the year. I even started to question it, but then we saw that in May. We saw them just say, you know what, we're not going to waste your time around us. We're going to do this and this. And he tried things out. And even with the, the management of the bullpen is one of the best, honestly, one of the best things I've seen anybody do in the, in the way of just managing it out. Like you're getting Kyle Funkhauser become more effective with just one pitch, his slider. Uh, Tyler Alexander, uh, he was in the bullpen and kind of struggled. Let's put him as a starter. Let's maximize his cutter. Guess what? Got something out of it. And that to me, that is what a manager should do. Maximize the potential of any of his players recognize the strengths and use them accordingly. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's uh, in baseball. So many times you don't really see the, Oh God, this guy's in the game. Like you do in basketball or football, you kind of see these diamonds in a rough in the rough. And it seems like Hinch has a special knack for finding a diamond in the rough and giving a player who might struggle initially 
or gets one shot or has been to triple A a few times and back down to double A, give them a chance to catch on. And Haas is the perfect example because I think that that production is going to be there next year. That power doesn't go away. And you see his approach. There was a game against Minnesota and, and I think he hit the ball to right field, maybe for a grand slam. And then maybe again for a double, a few times he uses the whole field. It's just very exciting. Rahelio, thank you so much for joining me. Where can we check out your work? And I want to just say that it's really cool with your focus on the minor leagues. You can kind of see what's coming for the big club down the road. And it's always be, it's always better to kind of like have a background and be informed about who the next player might be. And especially with the system brimming with some players that we all expect are essential to a run if it comes it's just really fun to kind of get a primer on them and attract their progress. You guys do a great job over there. Couldn't recommend what you're doing enough for Tigers fans. So where do we see more of what you're up to? More, much appreciated, pal. So you can find us at MotorCityBangles.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tiger Miley Report and our podcast, Tigers Radio Pod, um, which is part of the fan-sided partnership. So we're, we're happy to be proud of that. Um, you can find myself, Rodcast Baseball, on Twitter. And Chris Brown, 0914, my podcast partner, who honestly, Chris is one of those guys that we nerd out. We don't, we text all day talking about nerdy stuff. I got a dice baseball game here. I got all excited about that. And so, um, yeah, we have a discord. So if you, if you want to talk Tigers, we're in there all day. We keep it civil. It's a great way to continue the conversation, even with the lockout. So the lockout is going to stretch our imaginations a little bit, but yeah, that's where you can find our work. And now conversation, as it always does, turns to the NBA, where tomorrow night the Atlanta Hawks and Philadelphia 76ers will be squaring off on ESPN. On the mic for that will be Beth Moens. It will be the first time a female announcer has called an NBA game on ESPN, perhaps nationally. I have IT. I got the research department on that. We'll get back to you if that's not correct, but I believe it to be true. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So at this point of your career, when you've done so many different things, you get an opportunity to try a new discipline and break through in a new area and prepare for a new challenge. I got to imagine that's kind of what attracts a lot of people to the industry to begin with, because there are so many opportunities to do different things. What is in preparing for tomorrow night's broadcast? Is there a certain level of excitement that you're able to conjure up that maybe a, a typical broadcast or some a sport that you've done many times before? Is there a different feeling for it? I think absolutely, and you know, I think especially poignant with this being the 75th anniversary of the NBA. That there's a certain nostalgia, I think, even even for broadcasters that. When you do start uh, a new adventure or when you're trying something a little bit different, it kind of, you know, for me, it, it takes me back to, to my childhood days when, you know, you'd, you'd wake up and, and the first thing you'd reach for was the, new, the box scores in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, anytime there was a game on TV, you know, I remember back in the day when it was, you know, only once or twice a week that you had a chance to watch the NBA. And, and so it's, in some ways, it's a rediscovery of sort of your love affair with sports and what makes it so special um, when you do start following it sort of, 
you know, day to day. For those of us in, in journalism and, and, and you know, sometimes you're locked in on a particular sport if that's what you happen to be covering or a particular team even. And so this has sort of reopened my eyes to discover, you know, what the, what the current NBA is all about. And, and with all the changes, you know, in analytics and, and all the, you know, the, the great young players around the league and, and the impact that they're able to have um, is, has been something that I've really enjoyed in the last few months as you start to take a deeper dive into the league, knowing that, you know, you have a chance to cover it a lot more. So that, that's been really cool for me. And, and one of the things that I've learned over the years and, and with the versatility of being able to call a lot of different things, my game boards don't change a whole lot. I'm still, um, you know, despite uh, everybody's pleas to get me uh, computerized, I still love to write it all out. You know, here's my here's my Hawks game board and, and my my wonderful penmanship and, you know, filling in the stats and the storylines and all that kind of um, cool stuff. And, and then really the best part is when you hardly have to use that sheet at all. If it's a good game and, and you're just talking hoops and you're you're talking strategy, that that's the best part of all. I think that ESPN has been so smart in recent years in getting different voices on its NBA coverage. I mean, there's a lot of different people who call games. And I think what's cool is that that opens up the opportunity for viewers to check something out and be like, you know what? I really enjoy how Mark Jones calls the game, or Mm -hmm. I prefer how Mike Breen calls the game, but everybody's approaching it from a totally different angle. So I'm excited as a viewer to see how you approach the business of an NBA game where in my mind, you're so inextricable from, from my background, big 10 football. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's just, it's that, it's that auditory, yeah. like your sense of smell that, that brings you back. But I'm excited to see the way that you're going to imprint your own take on things. Is there a thought mm-hmm. about establishing a, it's a big word, but an ethos or a brand or anything like that? Or are you kind of just like on the lazy river taking, uh, taking it where the game takes you? You know, I, I think first and foremost, my, you know, my training as a, a, a Syracuse Newhouse uh, play-by-play school, and, and you think of all the greats that, that have run through there from the Costases to the Tarikos to the McDonough's, you know, I think first and foremost is it's not my game, it's their game. So, so don't, don't get in the way of it. Um, so in, in that regard, I think it's, it, uh, the call becomes very organic. Um, you know, one of the things as, as an English major first, and, and this is really my only opportunity uh, to, to bust out my thesaurus. And, um, you know, one, one of the things I love to do is, you know, as the game is progressing, kind of, you know, dial in what's the best way, what's the most descriptive way to call that and to, you know, in my background growing up as a, as a basketball coach's kid and, and playing the sport my whole life, um, just, just to have, have the language of the game and, and how much fun it is and, and working with a guy like Jeff, who you know you can play off of and, and have some witty banner with and sort of challenge and push each other. I, I think that's probably the big thing. Um, and, and doing that all being entertaining and informative uh, without ever forgetting that it, it's their game out on the court, not, not any, not anything that I have to do or say. And, and um, you know, that, that's kind of goes back to my point guard mentality of, you know, ma- making everybody else around us better and doing it all for the good of the team is, is something that I, I love to do. And, 
and, and hopefully along the way you, you find that good turn of phrase to toss to break with the, you know, the perfect line or, or something like that. What I, from the outside, what I see would be so challenging is every single sport has its own rhythms and mm-hmm. the down periods and the time in which you can fill. Sometimes like in baseball, there's a tremendous amount in college football. It's, it's a very small window because there's going to be a new play. And in the yeah. NBA particularly is even faster than college basketball Yeah, where it goes up and down. How do you kind of get to the point where you're okay with knowing the rhythm by the time mm-hmm. game time comes? How, what type of reps do you do for something like that? So uh, I, I was able to call a preseason game and called some summer league stuff uh, in uh, Vegas earlier. And then what I, what I did even when I was younger and I, I'll still do today, you know, I might watch the first quarter of a game and listen um, to the sort of ebbs and flows, you know, how's Jonesy doing it? How, how's Dave Pash sort of what we call the contour, you know, of somebody's voice in, in their call and, and, and actually listen to the content or do, you know, like in football, a lot of times you're, you're weaving in when this guy was drafted, where he went to college, you know, sometimes in basketball, uh, it, you know, it's more about what trade he might've been involved in or what other guys he's played with. You know, there are sort of different conversations sometimes with each sport. And then it's, um, you know, maybe the second quarter, I just turn the sound down and I'll just call the game while I'm watching it and sort of get a good feel for, you know, what I might do or what I might say. Um, and, and then you always try and go back and, and watch at least part of your game and listen back to it and say, Oh, you know, see what, what worked and what we could have done a little bit better. I think the big thing too, uh, the nice thing with basketball is you're literally right there on, on the court. So you have a pretty good feel for it and, and your analyst is right there with you. So a lot of, what I do play by play is all body language and, you know, sort of this hand signals and, you know, sometimes it's, it's whacking each other on the shoulder or putting your finger, Hey, I, I can add here, you know, that you kind of do that weave in each other in and out of a conversation. And then the other big thing I, I love about basketball and really any sport is that talk back button. You know, we have that ability to talk back to our producer to maybe, Hey, next dead ball, we got a great story about Doc Rivers. Let's see if we can work that in. And, and then they can let, you know, your analysts know and all the camera guys. And, are, and so as soon as that ball goes out of bounds, you're ready to go. And, and that's kind of something that, you know, with, the, with working with a lot of experienced people it is a big plus. Will this be your first time working with Jeff Van Gundy? It will be my first time with, with Coach Van Gundy. Yeah, we, we spoke earlier. We, we have a Similar upbringing in upstate New York. We're both coaches' kids, and so uh, have, have kind of grown up around the game. So it, it should be a, a lot of fun. Well, I am. Uh, I'm always so impressed with his ability to go in any different direction. Uh, mm-hmm. So many different versions of Van Gundy. You get ornery Van Gundy. You get just appreciating the beauty of basketball. You get, hey, I kind of, I'm going to be like I'm on a podcast here. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to veer off in a, in a, in a right turn. He seems like someone who is really, really fun, but also someone who you just want to totally be on board with. How many Mm -hmm. times does it take through your career? You've worked with so many different people. How many games do you have to do together to really understand what makes another person click? Uh, What you, 
you can pick up on an awful lot just by your conversations pregame, you know, so we'll be over there a couple hours ahead of time and, and, you know, just hearing what kinds of things are interesting to him about the game, but then also what kinds of things are interesting to him about life, you know? So usually I go into a game with, I love my index cards, you know, something on Philly, something on Atlanta, something on the, you know, big picture NBA. And I think with Jeff, I might need a third card that would be like pop culture and music and what are the latest movies out there? What's the breaking news? You know, just so I can try and stay as hip as he is. Um, because I, I think that's one of the things too that I, I love when I'm listening to a game is that ability to kind of go back and forth with, you know, sort of real life and, and what's happening in the game. And, um, you know, I, I think that trying to build that chemistry as, as quickly as possible is, is something that can be a big plus. So, you know, you may hit, you may hit up somebody's Wikipedia page, you know, maybe I'll try and find a podcast or two that he's been on, you know, what's on his mind lately. And, and, um, you know, see if we can find a zinger or two that I, I can, I can sort of uh, instigate and get a little, get a little something going. You know, that's just an example where everybody's least favorite person tends to be the person who's calling the game of the team that they're watching. Uh, it, you know, it, it always seems to be, against that particular fan base somehow after being yes yes last week but you know what you said what you mentioned is really it shows the layers of what a play-by-play announcer has to do you have to be on the spot all the time you cannot make a factual error which the lay person would be making them left and right but then you Mm -hmm. also have to make it light and make it fun and seem entirely comfortable and that I think the thing that is really been impressed on me in having conversations with people at the top of this field is how much of the work is done before game day. Because if you absolutely don't, if you try to take a shortcut, you will absolutely be exposed in the moment. And then there's the second barrier of not just putting together a competent broadcast. It's having a broadcast that feels fun that other people aren't Mm -hmm. even thinking about like the, puppeteer strings moving it seems like such a high challenge uh and no one gets to a good one by accident yeah i i think that that's the one thing i always stress with everybody is you have to have the preparation and so you know when you're on the air you know 300 hours a year yeah you might get somebody's name wrong but you you try your best to keep that to a minimum in the heat of the moment you want to know your names and numbers and and you know sort of access to those treetop things. And then you drop in some deeper nuggets of knowledge as you go along based on, on the, what you've researched. But I think the big thing is just the confidence of when you sit down courtside, knowing, okay, I'm, I'm pretty much prepared for anything that's going to happen out there. I feel good about, you know, what we've done to get ready, you know, uh, trusting in my producer and director and, and the sideline and everybody involved. And that I think is the first and foremost to put you at ease and make you totally comfortable to just sit down and do what comes natural. And that's, and that's called the game. And then I, I think the other thing that um, I, I always try to impress upon people is just the ability to have multiple conversations at once. You know, you've got the one going on in your own head. What, what am I talking about right now? Where are we going next? I'm, I'm listening to the analyst. Okay. What's he saying? So I can play off of that. You may have a sideline reporter who also can, Hey, you know, the so-and-so's on the sideline and, and uh, he's arguing with, uh, you know, Joe Blow. And then you've got your producer reminding you that you have the Monday night football promo coming up and, and somebody's handing that to you. So I, that, that's, that's also part of the fun, sort of the, 
you know, sometimes it's literally bobbing and weaving arms and hand signals and, you know, uh, somebody telling you something in, in one ear and you're hearing something else in the other ear. And, and, and that's one of the big challenges that I, I always relish when you sit down courtside is that um, adrenaline rush of we're, we're really playing our own game while the other one is going on. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a layer that so many people, very few people have been able like to be in a production truck like I have and see the organized chaos and then kind of the air traffic controlledness of it all. Uh, but you know what, maybe that's just something to think about the next time you feel inclined to send a rude tweet about someone who's on live television for three hours a day. Perhaps it's yeah. not so easy. I, I have, a, you know, as, as a play-by-play announcer, you know, some of the the folks that, uh, you know, when we talk Syracuse mafia and we have conversations from time to time, it's, you know, I, I embrace the role sort of of being Switzerland. And, you know, while I can share my opinion from time to time, I, I'm really trying to stay down the middle of the road and, and help my analyst express his opinions. And, and, you know, I'm sort of the who, what, when, and where stick with the facts and, and, and stick to the truth, which obviously for a lot of fans is not an easy thing to take. And that's where you get, you know, um, the Atlanta fan bashing you uh, at the exact same time as the Philadelphia fan because you're being a homer for the other team. Um, I, I do get a kick out of reading, you know, uh, a lot of my cohorts and, and fellow commentators when they post those that are that are happening uh, from fan bases at the same time. Well, be careful. Don't say anything about Ben Simmons and he should be fine. That's Beth Moen. She's on ESPN Friday night, Hawks, Sixers. 7 p.m. <laughs> on the mothership. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.